0: good morning happy father's day it is good to be in the house of the lord this morning and it is good to be with you god's people and we are glad that you have come to join us for worship this morning Uh, i hope if you have the opportunity and if it is still something that you're able to do that you will spend time celebrating and rejoicing with uh, your dads if you have that ability still and that you will continue to show your appreciation to them um I also hope the time that you'll take today to be able to celebrate and worship your heavenly father, uh, the one who gives us ultimate life and gives us life eternal through what he has done through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In fact, that is the reason why we come into this place is to celebrate the good news, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways in which we do that and celebrate and we worship the Lord is by opening his word studying it together. So if you brought your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you have, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the book of Genesis and to chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40. As we continue our study through Genesis, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week, you'll remember that we left Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob and the grandson of Isaac and the great-grandson of Abraham. Well, we We left him in an Egyptian prison. Now, as chapter 39, as we studied it last week, makes clear, Joseph was not in prison because he had done anything wrong. But actually he was in prison because he'd been falsely accused by the wife of a man named Potiphar. Potiphar, you'll remember, was an important man in Egypt. As a matter of fact, Moses describes him back in chapter 39 as being the captain of the guard. He had bought Joseph as a slave from a group of Ishmaelites who had bought Joseph as a slave from his own brothers. And the reason that his brothers had sold Joseph into slavery, well, they would have killed him had it not been for the eldest brother, Reuben, who had discouraged them from doing so. But they were actually sold into slavery because of the suggestion of another brother named Judah, who suggested that they sell him. The reason that they did was because they were jealous of Joseph. They they jealously hated him. And so that's how he ended up in Egypt. And while we might think that here this man Joseph is in this Egyptian prison would indicate to us that God had abandoned him and that God had forgotten about him, the fact of it is just the opposite. In fact, we, we noted last week from chapter 39 that, that bookended in that chapter, repeated both at the beginning and the end of that chapter, is this idea that God was still with Joseph. Regardless of what he went through, God was still his God and he was still with him. And what we recognize from our study of chapter 39 was this truth, that while never promising the elimination of suffering or deprivation, or difficulties, the Lord's presence assures the child of God that he or she will never be abandoned or separated from God's love. That's that's really what we learn from from chapter 39. And I think it's incredibly important that we keep that thought in the back of our minds because as we move forward into the narrative of chapter 40 that we're going to read this morning, we're going to see that things actually go from bad worse for Joseph, not so much in the physical sense, but in the emotional sense. So with that as an introduction, let's begin to read there in chapter 40, verse 1, where we read these words, and it came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream. Both of them... Each man's dream in one night and each man's dream with its own interpretation. And Joseph came in to them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody of the Lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, We have each had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell them to me, please. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me, and then the vine was three branches, and it was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. And then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now, within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house, for indeed I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. And also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream, and they were there three white baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. And within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now, it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants, and he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged. The chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph but forgot him. brothers and sisters this is the word of God and for the people of God let's pray together this morning our father we thank you for your word and we thank you that we have the opportunity to come into your house to study it to read it for ourselves to be able to allow your Holy Spirit to bring us wisdom and insight and understanding. And I pray exactly that would occur today. As we come to this place with bringing all kinds of outside interferences really into our lives and things that we know that are important to us, things that may be going on later today, later this week. We bring things that have happened over the past week into this place. Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability for just a few moments this morning to to shut out all the distractions and be able to focus on your word and hear from you, the God of heaven, as you speak. I pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Genesis 40 is another one of those chapters in the Bible that, quite frankly, folks, sometimes they just really don't know what to do with it. They really don't know how to make this chapter, bring it into application. There's not a lot of moral applications, quite frankly, that can be made from what we read about Joseph in this, in this chapter, we read that he serves, he serves other prisoners, uh, he interprets their dreams for them, uh, he asks one of them for help after that person is restored to his position in society, and then we see that Joseph is forgotten about. And at the end of this chapter, what we see is that Joseph is largely in the very same place that he was when the chapter began. He's still languishing in an Egyptian prison. And because that's the case, it's sort of challenging to make Joseph's example one that we would put forward for someone else to follow. I mean, there's really not a lot there that you can sort of encourage someone else to be like Joseph in this passage. But as I pointed out previously from other passages, I believe that's the wrong approach to take when when trying to interpret the Scriptures to begin with, particularly Old Testament narrative. Um, In fact, my conviction is that Moses wrote what he did here in chapter 40, not so much to point us to Joseph, but rather to point us to God and to reveal truths about God to us that actually transcend the situation that Joseph finds himself in and actually apply across the board to all of us as well. But to see that, we have to work our way through the text and see exactly what Moses actually relates to us. So I provided for you an outline this morning that just going to provide you three simple little words, hooks that just let us hang our thoughts on as we work through this passage. And the very first word that I've given you that I hope to be able to bring out from this text this morning is the word humility. Humility. I use that word humility as a descriptive word for Joseph because of what we read at the end of chapter 39. At the end of 39, remember what what the Lord told us back there or what Moses told us in, in verse 21 about the Lord. He says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and he gave him favor. And then down in verse 23 we read, the Lord was with him and whatever Joseph did, the Lord made it to prosper. Now, at the end of chapter 39, what we noted is that the Lord's presence was with Joseph and then the Lord's favor resting upon Joseph ultimately caused Joseph to be elevated into the position in the prison where he was over everything. He was in charge of everything. Just like he had been in Potiphar's house and now he was in the prison, he was actually running everything in the prison. But then as chapter 40 starts, on one particular day, Joseph enjoying, I guess, if you could call it that, the, the, the ability to, in, to run everything in the prison. But then according to chapter 40, verse 1, two new prisoners just showed up out of the blue one day. And these weren't just any regular old run-of-the-mill prisoners. These were two very high-profile prisoners who came into the prison where Joseph was. This was Pharaoh's chief butler or cupbearer as many of your outlines will, will, or many of your versions will will make sure you note, know, the cupbearer and the butler are the same person. And then also we have the chief baker. Now, these two prisoners were high profile because they were of great importance to Pharaoh. And really they were of great importance to all of Egypt. And here's why. Kent Hughes notes that they held the life of Pharaoh in their hands, because they were charged with the purity of his. Food and his drink. They were there, the the, the taste tester, the cup bearer, would have been there to ensure that nothing was poisoning Pharaoh. He He would sip it first and make sure that if he didn't die, then it was okay for Pharaoh to drink. And the baker himself would have been in charge of the food because many who would have tried to have killed the Pharaoh would have worked through his food or through his drink to accomplish that action. So, they were charged with the purity and the quality of his food and his drink. But Egyptian cupbearers, bearers, they, they not only were that, the baker not only was, was just someone who was in charge of the food and the drink, but as Bruce Waltke points out, these guys were more than just simply taste testers and, and, and of the like because officials like these were often wealthy individuals. They were often very influential. And more often than not, they were brought into the inner circle of Pharaoh and they were his confidants, and they wielded great political power and influence. Well, for whatever reason, and we're left to wonder why, these two prominent men were, were suddenly put in prison. And notice they were put into the prison that Joseph was in, and you'll also notice that they were put into the prison of the captain of the guard there in verse 3. Well, excuse me, verse 4. And the captain of the guard is the same person that we saw in the last chapter... ...was none other than Potiphar himself. And so they are brought into Potiphar's prison that was attached to Potiphar's home. And it is there that Joseph is also being held. And so it's Potiphar, the captain of the guard... ...who places Joseph in the responsibility of having to serve... ...these two high-profile prisoners. In fact, verse 4 says, the captain of the guard charged Joseph with the cupbearer and the baker, and Joseph served them. Now, James Montgomery Boyce has observed that Joseph is now at the lowest point of his career to judge from outward circumstances. I mean, think about it. He's not only a prisoner, but now he is a servant to other prisoners. Honestly, it couldn't get a whole lot lower for the man. And that's why I use the word humility particularly when we remember that God had given Joseph a couple of dreams. Do you remember those dreams? As we studied from back in chapter 37, in the first dream, the Lord gave a dream to Joseph, and Joseph was out in the field with his brothers, and they were binding wheat into sheaves, and then the dream said that all of the sheaves of his brothers, the 11 sheaves, rose up, and then they bowed down to the one sheave in the middle, and that was Joseph. That was the first dream that God gave to him, and then there was a second dream, that moved from the field to the heavens. And there, there, 11 stars all bowed down to Joseph along with the sun and the moon. And that represented not only his brothers, but his father and his mother, who all bowed down to him. But here in chapter 40, Joseph's a prisoner, charged with serving other prisoners. It certainly does not look like those dreams would ever come true, does it? Nothing appeared to be working out like those dreams that God had given to Joseph indicated that they would. Many years had passed since God had actually given him those dreams and rather than being in a position of power and authority where others would come and bow down to him, Joseph is the one who's doing the bowing. Joseph's the one who's doing the scraping. Joseph's the one who's doing the serving in, of all places, a prison. Such are the humbling circumstances that Moses relates to us in these opening verses. But then notice the next word that I've given you there on your outline. The next word is the word confidence. Confidence. As far removed as Joseph's circumstances seemed to be from the dreams that God had given him, Joseph remains confident and as confident as ever that God would actually bring those dreams to pass. And I want you to notice how we know that. Notice what happens back in verses 5 through 8. These two high-profile prisoners that Joseph served, each had a dream, each one of them on the same night. And those dreams had both men concerned. Matter of fact, their faces were saddened. Their countenance was was droopy when when Joseph came in and saw them. And he sees their faces he says, "What's what's going on with you guys? Obviously, he had gotten to know them well enough in the time that he had served them to be able to sense with them that something was bothering them. And he says, you you guys look terrible. What in the world has happened to you? And they said, well, both of us have had a dream. And, And we know that these dreams are important, but we've got no one to interpret the dream for us. Now, those who have made it their study to study ancient cultures, particularly that of Egypt, will tell us, that, That there were professional interpreters of dreams during those times. Guys that carried dream books with them. Things where they had written down that certain dreams meant certain things. And they would take those dream books and they would, you could pay a fee to them and they would be glad to tell you what your dream meant. Guess where those professional interpreters though did not go to interpret dreams? You got it. Prison. They didn't go there. Consequently, these two high-profile prisoners, they were anxious, they were saddened because they knew that their dreams meant something important, but they didn't know what. But I want you to compare their saddened and anxious hearts to Joseph's confidence. Joseph responds to them in verse 8. He says, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell me your dreams. Now, Kent Hughes, he points out in his commentary that we can read into Joseph's response to his fellow prisoners an implicit declaration of belief that his own dreams would come true. His point is this. If Joseph had given up on his own dreams, if he had decided that what God had told him was not going to happen, he would have had no impetus to go to these guys and say, hey, tell me your dreams and I'll interpret them for you. But Joseph plainly volunteered and he asked for the opportunity to provide those dreams with meaning. And though many years had passed since chapter 37, as many as as a dozen years had, had occurred, many tumultuous years, he didn't even know if his family was still alive. Joseph didn't know if he would ever walk out of that prison again. Joseph had spent his time speaking Egyptian and not Hebrew and and. Obviously, though, in light of all of that, Joseph continued to believe that the dreams that God had given him, the revelation of truth that God had given him was true and that he could trust in it. And he was supremely confident that every member of his family would ultimately bow down to him, from Reuben all the way down to Benjamin. And as Hughes goes on to state, Joseph lived out this dynamic certitude regarding his dreams in the heart of... Of Egypt's pyramids so even in the midst of prison even while he is at his lowest point Joseph is still confident in what God had said would come about and we see that in his willingness to interpret the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker but then we also see it displayed for us again specifically when he tells the chief cupbearer or the the, the butler that after he's interpreted his, his dreams, he tells him to remember him. In other words, he is fully confident that the cupbearer would be restored to his position. So confident is he that in verse 14 he says, Look, remember me when it is well with you and please show kindness to me and make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. Now, if, if the chief cupbearer had any doubts with regard to his being set free from prison... Joseph had no doubts about it. Joseph was confident of the freedom that the cupbearer would experience because he is now saying, look, remember me when you are back in Pharaoh's court and get me out of this place. So Joseph's confidence in God's revelation is demonstrated in his willingness to interpret the dreams of the cupbearer and in his request of the cupbearer to remember him once he is restored To his position, but there's still one more way that this passage tells us of Joseph's confidence. You see, the chief baker also had a dream. And his dream carried with it a much more foreboding interpretation. In fact, after telling his dream about the three baskets of baked goods that were on his head and and the birds coming down and eating those baked goods. Verse 19, we read that Joseph says, Look, within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now, What an awful thought. What a terrible thing to have to consider. I mean, it's likely that the baker had heard the positive interpretation of the chief cupbearer. And was probably secretly hoping, good, I'm going to get the same kind of news. But then when Joseph gave him the interpretation, it was as far removed from good news as it could be. There would be no happy ending for this man. But consider this. For Joseph to have told this man what would happen to him in only three days required courage. And it required confidence in the interpretation it, it was a courageous act on Joseph's part first of all because had he not been confident that what he said was going to transpire just imagine if, if the baker had actually been restored to Pharaoh's court you can only imagine how that would have turned out for Joseph who had given him the bad news and then it didn't come to pass furthermore if, if Joseph hadn't been confident in the in the interpretation, that would have called the cupbearer's interpretation into question as well. But his honest interpretation of the baker's dream also required courage and confidence because, as James Montgomery Boyce points out, although it was difficult, particularly in a case where the interpretation concerned the life of one whom he had become friends with, Joseph was nevertheless not afraid to deliver the whole counsel of God. You see, such a statement goes, goes on to cause Boyce to say this. He says, I wish all believers had this courage and this confidence. In fact, he states, I wish all ministers had it. How many there are who are willing to preach the cupbearer's sermon but are unwilling to preach the baker's sermon? To that end, Let me state this. The message of the gospel is a message of good news. But good news can only be understood properly when it is compared to the bad news. In other words, you cannot know how good things can be until you know how bad things are. And let me state for you very clearly and unequivocally, things are bad as it pertains to the human predicament, all of us are in a very, very bad state. We are born with a fallen nature and with the inclination to sin. That does not mean that when we sin, we are as bad as we could ever possibly be, nor does it mean that we are as bad as others that we look at. What it does mean, nevertheless, is that one momentary lapse of, one opportunity of missing the mark makes us a sinner. and With that sin, we are tarnished. And according to the scriptures, our sin deserves the eternal wrath of God. In fact, that is the righteous, it is the just, it is the deserving sentence that is passed upon every single one of us. All of us stand condemned before the holy and righteous God of heaven. And because of our condemnation, the judgment is that we will spend an eternity in hell. We will spend an eternity in a place of torment where, as Jesus says, the worm never dies and the flame is never quenched. The bad news is that God does not grade on a curve. His requirements are perfection and there is not a single one of us in this room who has ever passed that test. But there was one. There was one who was born and lived a perfect, sinless, holy life, the life that God requires. He is God's own son. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is both fully God and he is fully man. And he has been appointed as the mediator between God and man. He is one who can simultaneously lay his hand on the Godhead and on humanity at the same time. And the scriptures teach us plainly that God sent his son into this world not to condemn the world because the world already stands before him condemned. But nevertheless, God sent his son into the world in order to save the world, in order to save rotten, hell-bound sinners just like you and just like me. And you see, this is where we finally get to the good news. Jesus Christ could state, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He could state that because he had fulfilled every demand of God's law. He lived life exactly the way God intended for humans to live. He lived it with perfection, but then he offered himself as a willing sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sinfulness. Jesus Christ bore upon his own shoulders the full weight of my sin and of your sins. And he who never did one single thing wrong absorbed the full weight of God's wrath poured out in its full strength upon his body on the cross of Calvary. And there he became sin who had never known sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus died so that undeserving sinners like you and me might live. That, my friends, is the good news. It is is good news that your sins, though they may be as crimson, can be washed as white as snow. You may have sunk to the lowest possible place that you can imagine in life, but God has provided for you a way to be saved through Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And I have been called to preach the good news. It is my passion to tell others that Jesus alone can save them. And I want you to know this morning He will save you. He will save you if you will humble yourself before Him, if you will confess your sin and trust in Him to save you. That is the good news. But, friend, do not ignore the bad news. Do not ignore that apart from the salvation offered to you only through the atoning work of of Jesus, you will die and you will spend an eternity in hell. If you choose to meet God based upon your own merits, you will do so and you will stand before him condemned by your sins. You have no hope other than the hope that comes through Jesus. And if you die and you are unprepared and you are not united to him by faith in Jesus, you will perish. Those are not my words. Those are the words of Holy Scripture. And it is also my responsibility to preach the message not only of the cupbearer, but also of the baker. There is nothing enjoyable about the thought of hell. There is nothing enjoyable about confronting people with the ramifications of their sin. But I submit to you, there is nothing that I could do that would be more loving to you than to warn you of the consequences and beg you to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ who is, who is your only hope. And I want you to know my courage and my confidence to do so lies in the same place that Joseph lies. It's in the fact of what he has revealed, what God has revealed his truth to be. And Unlike Joseph whose truth was revealed to him in dreams, we have holy scripture. We have 66 books that have been given to us, every page of which testifies to the Son of Christ, Son of God, who has come to give his life for us. And so that is the reason why I stand before you with confidence and with courage to declare to you not simply the good news, but also the bad news. And here's what I want you to know, according to verse chapter 40 verses 20 and 22, everything came about exactly the way Joseph had said it would. It came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. He lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. And then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. What God has revealed will surely come to pass. So, this passage has revealed the humbling situation that Joseph found himself in while he was in prison. And it has also alerted us to the confidence that God's servant Joseph had in continuing to believe what God had said would be true and that it would come to pass. But then notice the last verse, the last verse, verse 23, yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph but forgot him. The last word on your outline this morning is this word, it's disappointment. 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 Back in verse fourteen, Joseph asked for his friend to remember him. In verse twenty-three, Joseph was forgotten. Bruce Waltke notes this: this was not a mental lapse; it was a moral lapse. The cupbearer, self-centeredly, did not bother to remember Joseph, and I can only imagine what that must have been like for Joseph. He's released from the the cupbearer's released from prison. Joseph began to think what it's going to be like to finally feel the sun bearing down on his shoulders again. What it's going to be like to finally breathe in that Egyptian air as opposed to that dank, dark, moldy air that he had been breathing in for so long. And every time the cell door opened, he heard it. I can imagine that his heart leapt within his chest as he was expecting that to be someone sent from Pharaoh to release him. But the first day turned into the second, and then the third, and then the fourth, and then a week, and then two weeks, and then a month, and then two months, and then six months, and then a year. And then, as the next chapter tells us, two full years, Joseph was forgotten. Or was he? Certainly, Joseph was forgotten by Pharaoh's chief butler and cupbearer, but And certainly Joseph had to be disappointed by the fact that his friend had willfully allowed him to continue in that prison. But Joseph was never forgotten by God. In fact, as tough as this is, I believe God allowed Joseph to remain in that prison until just the right time came along for him to fulfill the role that God had planned for him all along. As I was preparing the sermon, I was reminded of a hymn that was written by William Cowper in 1773. The hymn is entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It's based upon a poem that he wrote that's entitled this, Light Shining Out of Darkness. It begins this way, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in the unfathomable binds of never failing skill he treasures up the bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints fresh courage take the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning Providence. He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Joseph may have been forgotten by the cupbearer, but he was never, ever, ever forgotten by God. In fact, as we will see in the next chapter, God had everything in control all along, and it is that realization that brings me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. Although we may be disappointed by human hopes, even forgotten by man, We know that God will never forget his children and will work through the circumstantial details of our lives to bring about his desired purposes. There are no doubt in my mind some of you in this room this morning who need to hear that today. Some of you may be going through what is absolutely critical and desperate times for you. And you have probably even had the question come through your mind, has God forgotten me? Perhaps you feel abandoned. Maybe you feel forgotten by your friends or your family. Maybe you're disappointed by your circumstances. Remember this. God never calls you to a place where he wants your confidence to be in your circumstances. God always puts you in places where he wants your confidence to be reassured to be in him. As we noted last week, so again we remind ourselves this week, regardless of your circumstances... God will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. In fact, as Calper put it, behind every frowning providence hides the smiling face of God. And what that means is that just like Joseph, you can depend on what God has revealed to you in his word. Your confidence needs to rest fully in what Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, has revealed in this word, the Bible. And you can have confidence in the middle of your struggle, that he will bring his will to pass. And what God wills for your life is always what is best for you, even though that thought may seem as foreign to you as a dungeon in the middle of the pyramids of Egypt appeared to Joseph. You may feel forgotten, but you are never forgotten by God. One last word as I close today. And I go back to the interpretation that Joseph gave to Pharaoh's chief baker. In many ways, as tough as that message had to have been for Joseph to deliver it, it was a message that was filled with mercy and grace because the baker, if you consider it, was given three days. He was given three days to make things right with Joseph's God. In fact, if God was the one who gave the dream, then that same sovereign God was the one whom the baker would ultimately have to stand before and give an account to. Here's what we must realize. None of us in this room are promised three days. It's true that many of us in this room will very, very likely live many, many, many more years But it is equally true that we aren't promised three more hours. What we are promised is that it is appointed under man once to die and after this comes judgment. We may wonder if the chief baker spent his three days preparing for his judgment. If he humbled himself before God and begged for mercy and for grace. We aren't told, but we are warned. And his plight forces me to ask you this question. Are you prepared to die? Are you prepared to meet the one and true living God with whom you and I and everyone else will eventually have an appointment? I want you to know that if you are not prepared to die, and friend, you are not prepared to live. But you can be. Today is the day of salvation according to the scriptures. Today is the day that you can humble yourself before God. Today is the day that you can place your trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Because he is your only hope. And he promises that all who will bow before him in that humility and trust in him, he will in no wise cast out and he will save them to the uttermost. And I want you to know this morning that a greater decision could never be made by you, Or by anyone else. And I state that to you tonight, today. With a supreme confidence and courage. That comes from this word. Because brothers and sisters. This is the word of God. And it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father we thank you. For your goodness and for your mercy. And I thank you for your word. That continues to call us. To repentance. And to faith in Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. He he alone is the only one in whom we can trust. And I pray that you would allow your Holy Spirit to continue to bring that conviction upon us and that it would also bring confidence to us, that it would bring comfort to us in the midst of our struggles, that we know that a God who saves us through through the death of his son and the resurrection of Christ is not a God that will abandon us, who will always be there for us, even in the midst of our struggles. And that you will take those situations and circumstances in which we find ourselves. And you will use them for our good and for your glory. I pray that you would do that this morning. That you would comfort the saints and you would convict those who are sinners. And who have refused to bow before you this day. I pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake.